0: Good evening. 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 Welcome to St. Michael Catholic Church and School. I shouldn't really have to welcome all of you because you're all pretty familiar with the place. I'm Jenny Rasmussen. I'm the art history teacher here at St. Michael. Our St. Michael Middle School Art History program is now in its sixth year, and I'm honored to be a part of it with all of these wonderful students that you see around the room. In conjunction with that educational effort, Our sponsors Bob and Nancy Carney hoped to bring the wider parish community in contact with art history scholars who could cultivate interest and knowledge in this fascinating discipline. Tonight, I am pleased to welcome you for the final night of our fifth annual series of evening lectures, The Sacred and the Profane, a continuous series in the history of art. In fact, this is our 18th lecture overall, so we look forward to number 20 next year. This evening, we welcome Dr. Sharon Gerstel, professor of Byzantine art and archaeology at UCLA. Dr. Gerstel earned her PhD from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University in 1993. Today, she is not only a professor and an archaeologist, but also the acting director of the UCLA Stavros Nyarchos Foundation Center for the Study of Hellenic Culture. Dr. Gerstel's work focuses on the intersection of ritual and art in Byzantium and the Latin East. In 1999, she published the book Beholding the Sacred Mysteries, and her most recent book entitled Rural Lives and Landscapes in Late Byzantium, Art, Archaeology, and Ethnography, won three major literary awards for its contribution to medieval Greek cultural literature, including the 2016 Runciman Prize for the Anglo-Hellenic League. She has also edited many books on Byzantine art, culture, and sacred spaces. In her work as an archeologist, she has excavated many sites in Greece and has published her findings in multiple art and archeological journals. Her current research focuses on the intersection of music, architecture, and monumental decoration. She is co-director of the project, Bodies and Spirits, Soundscapes of Byzantium, which has been featured on Atlantic.com and on CBC Radio. Tonight, she will bring us into the sacred spaces of Byzantium with her talk, Sounding Sacred, Thinking About Paintings, Speech, and Chant in Byzantine Churches. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sharon Gerstel.
1: Can you hold Yes. I turn it off for you? <laughs> no, it's okay. Okay, it's off. It's off. It's off. Okay, turn me on. Yes. it? <laughs> Magic box. I'm not sure it's on though. It's okay. I'm so excited to be here um, to present this research in particular to middle school students because. My daughter is an 8th grader and she took part in this project as a 6th grader, so you, you can imagine yourselves maybe walking her path as I give you the results of our own uh, research. I've been over dinner hearing about your amazing school. I have to say how impressed I am that you have an art history program. I think seeing art and thinking about ritual and liturgy and literature is so important, So I'm. So excited about this, and I want to say that when I told people in Los Angeles that I was coming to lecture at a middle school, they were so impressed at what you have. So congratulations to all of you for sending your kids to such an amazing place, and for the students for how lucky you are in being at a school that develops all sides of your intellectual capacity. So congratulations, and thanks again for the UCLA t-shirt that welcomed me as I walked in here today. (laughs) Um, Mrs. Rasmussen has told me a little bit about what you've done in your curriculum, so I'm gonna start off with a building that I hope you all know. Uh, because when most people think about Byzantine art, they think about this church, Hagia Sophia, the great sixth century cathedral that dominated the visual, political, and religious landscape of Byzantium's capital, Constantinople, and this, of course, is the, the building that you all studied in class. This building was an innovation a change from the long basilicas that were a dominant form of Christian architecture for several centuries beforehand, in which you've all studied in sixth grade. The building was and still is about the encapsulation of volume, a material way to capture heaven and lead those who entered the church in faith to the contemplation of holy wisdom. And In fact, the name of the church, Hagia Sophia, as I always tell my students, It's not named for a saint named Sophia, it's named for an aspect of Christ that is holy wisdom. It's hard for us to contemplate the enormous size of the building, which is tall enough that the Statue of Liberty could easily fit under its dome. This building, this radical conception of space, inspired new forms of religious architecture, what we characterize as Byzantine, a form of church architecture in which the dominant feature is the dome, the heavenly sphere. How humans were transported to the sacred within buildings like this one depended on more than bricks and mortar, however. Byzantine architects were well aware of the transformative effects of light, which as you know, was linked to the word of God. It is not surprising then that in this building and in others, materials like silver mosaics were used to reflect light, just as gold mosaics were used to absorb it. And you can just make out the differences with the silver here on the west side with the light to reflect back onto the apse of the image of the Virgin Mary and the gold on the east side um, that make up the base of the dome. But if the architects understood the transformative power of light, they also understood the resonance of sound. And in the creation of religious sound spaces, spaces in which the worshiper was meant to be immersed in the word of God and his angels, the dome played an enormous role, both in the chanted word, but also in the direction of the spoken word, which we call homily. The perceived intermingling of heaven and earth within the body of the church through painting, light, and sound characterizes Byzantine worship and Byzantine art. In the centuries following the construction of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, Long after the conclusion of the iconoclast controversy in the empire, we see moves to articulate ever more clearly for the faithful the transformative properties of the church interior by placing before the very eyes of the worshipers images of dogmatic importance, for example, the Incarnation, stories from the Gospels, like the Annunciation, and models of Christian virtue, that is, the saints. Here, placed at eye level, the icons of the saint, the holy images, allow the faithful to engage in contemplative prayer and ask for assistance in salvation. So the church interior throughout most of Byzantine history is a complicated space, a space in which the living worshiper mingles with those represented on the walls, those images that serve, in a sense, as telecommunication devices, directing prayers to the saints whose eternal essence can never be fully captured in paint. Byzantine painters understood this necessary confusion between the heavenly and the earthly. They play with it, and they intentionally confuse the faithful, creating figures who wrench free from the wall and enter into our space, like the angel of the Annunciation. Look at this detail here, whose foot crosses the boundary of the composition as he leaps or flies, across the opening of the space to greet the Virgin, seated on the opposite wall. Now, for the last two decades, I've been principally concerned with church painting in late Byzantine settlements far from the capital, settlements of the 12th to 15th century, the very end point of Byzantium, particularly in the Mani, over here, the southernmost peninsula of the Greek Peloponnese, where I considered in a recent book that you heard about what I loosely termed the landscape of the village. And on the screen you see one of the most important churches in the Mani, very different from Hagia Sophia, called Hagia Stratigos, it's named for St. Michael the Archangel, in the village of Anubulari, which was initially built in the 12th century. And you can see the dome, which relates even this remote church to the large cathedral that I started with in the Byzantine capital. Today, I want to move beyond the study of architecture to think about the church interior and particularly about the soundscape of the painted church, places in which communities, whether village or monastic, saw and heard painted images simultaneously. So long after they've fallen into disuse, the painted programs of village churches like this one still recall sounds once heard in the buildings, both sacred and profane. Here in the church of Ayanari, the church of St. Cosmos and Damian, in nearby Kipula, a very small village in the Mani of 1265, a priest once dictated the names included in the dedicatory inscription here on the wall above the scene of the baptism to a painter. Read aloud, the words have the cadence of liturgical speech. So I want you to listen for a moment to what if I were to read or I handed the text on the wall to a friend of mine and I want you to listen to what it sounds like read in his voice and think about some conclusions you can reach. So this text was simply given to a friend of mine, and can you tell what his profession is from hearing his voice? He's a priest, and he read the words as if they were liturgical prayer, In fact, the reading of the name sounded just like the reading of the prayers of the deceased on the Saturday of souls, this kind of formulaic repetition of names. And so what we can see is that the text itself was orally dictated to the painter and captures on the wall that speech that we as readers no longer hear, because we depend more on our vision than on our hearing. So the words that we usually read silently when we visit the church were meant to be heard and thus remembered. Through images, painters frequently recorded the clanking sounds of the sensor chain in churches in the Mani and elsewhere, as here also in Kipula, where the representation of the sensor's bent chain signals motion and sound. So seeing the images of these deacon saints swinging their sensors, we see them, but it sounds like this. Right, you're all familiar with this sound. So once the sound is ingrained in memory, the image like these in Cyprus and Greece never look the same. Sound in Byzantine churches could be holy, but they could also be imported noises that were more mundane. For example, painters captured the discordant voices of women gossiping in the church, something of course that never happens. As here in a 13th century painting in the mani on the left, This figure here is labeled the woman who gossips and eavesdrops, and you can see how the snakes are biting her ears as punishment, or on the right in the representation from Crete of a woman who's labeled as the one who doesn't pay attention in church and gossips throughout the church service. So here's what such women sound like, and you may have experience with such women, in a typical conversation in church, which I've transcribed and translated for you. So these images preserve sounds that were and still part of the church soundscape the low hum of prayer, the voices of gossiping women, the clanking of chains, they captured for the faithful sounds that they knew well and remembered, and they're probably sounds that you've heard in church as well. Sounds from the outer world also penetrated the church interior, and they too are represented on its walls. so we see these images, but can we hear the images? The perpetual grinding sound of the handmill, a the sound familiar in villages in the Mediterranean even today, is captured in the representation of a stone halo that surrounds the head of a dishonest miller who's represented among the damned in a Cretan church. And this millstone is the sign of the nature and location of the miller's sin. That is, he overweighed grains in the mill and then he's punished in eternity for that. But it's also a sound image that represents, through the memory of the endless friction of the millstone, sustained labors for those who enter the church. Or... The tinkling bells captured in this image of St. Mamas, who's an agricultural saint in the eastern church, holding a goat with a bell tied around its neck in this Cretan village church, evoke the herds in the surrounding fields, those which were blessed as part of the village ritual, rituals that are documented in Byzantine service books and in ethnographic studies of the island. So When we see as art historians, measure and photograph churches today, the empty interiors are naturally quiet. But are we looking hard enough for sounds? Are we listening when we see? Neuroscientists working on brain mapping have noted that by repeatedly pairing audible tones, what you hear, with simultaneously presented visual stimuli, subsequent presentation of the visual stimulus alone triggers activation of the primary auditory cortex. And you can see on the diagram how these two primary functions, seeing and hearing, take place in the same part of the brain, often overlapping in a process that gives rise to the condition of synesthesia. In other words, vision, for those who would have repeatedly worshipped in the church, triggered sound memories. And in their time, images painted on the church walls preserved a soundscape that brought the outside and inside worlds together. So instead of simply seeing images, what would happen if we simultaneously heard them? Would the interior of a village church sound like this? It's kind of busy sounds going on as you're seeing the painting. Like the traces of incense that have seeped into the plastered surfaces Giving painted uh, figures even today a perceptible aroma, even after the years of the church's abandonment, sound, I would argue, clings to the walls. But you need to know where to look. Now my recent work on soundscapes has moved away from the village to focus on monastic churches and the relationship between Byzantine chant, acoustics, and monumental painting. And this work has led to a focus on churches in Thessaloniki, Greece's second largest city, also Byzantium, second city after Constantinople, where I co-direct with Chris Kiriakakis of the University of Southern California, the international team Soundscapes of Byzantium. Our study of the soundscapes of two of the city's early churches, the upper two buildings on the screen, the Ajirochidas Basilica and Hagia Sophia in Thessaloniki, was published just last year. Our focus on this first study was to document through the study of architecture monumental decoration, chant, primary sources acoustics and psychoacoustics, how differently shaped buildings, basilicas like this one and dome churches, were constructed to accommodate homily or chant and how these soundscapes were perceived in the time of their initial construction and their subsequent use, and I'd be happy to talk more about this uh, later. The study of the lower six buildings, however, all monastic churches, all preserving Byzantine paintings of the 14th century has led us to a different set of questions, and these are what I would like us to think about this evening. Art historians have long had an interest in chant texts and monumental painting. Images connected to the composition and practice of Byzantine chant began to appear already in the 12th century in buildings like this one in North Macedonia. The representation of hymn composers is frequently linked to sites of ritual performance. For example, let me introduce you to Joseph the hymnographer, the author of a set of prayers about the Virgin Mary called the Stavro Theotokion. In this church, Joseph stands at the left of a group of hymnographers, extending a scroll with the inscription, I'll read a you in English, Receive me, O Christ, these are my hymns, a text taken from the first canon, a chanted prayer from Monday mornings. And this is typical since all of the saints depicted on this wall hold scrolls with texts that refer to hymns or chanting. And one scholar has suggested even that we should read the hand motions of the figures in this church, all hymnographers, as motions of choral conducting. And on the right you see a painting of a 15th century Byzantine chanter with his hand raised in choral direction. And this is the motion for the the sound called the ison, Uh, So people who knew about Byzantine chant could read this hand gesture and interpret the sound that went with it. You can see that stepping back from the crop view of the representation, we can see that this was, in fact, the location where half of the monastic choir would have stood. Byzantium, the choir was divided into the north and south half stationed on each side of the church uh, with the hymn composers behind them and, in a sense, joining together with them in chant. What is remarkable is that in the century immediately following, we have an upsurge in the representation of hymns, not just the authors of the hymns, but the very hymns themselves. Of new chanted services, we find the representation of a hymn called the Canon of the Soul, here in the south aisle of a small tower chapel in Manathas, and this is the tower here. I'm gonna show you just one image from the inside of it. Um, This lengthy canon decorates an elevated site which was used as a monastic retreat or an oratory for the monks high up above the rest of the community and as a place of commemoration for those whose bones were actually deposited in the tower in the floor right below. The text of the canon is written above each representation, uh, linking hearing and seeing as the chanted service is directly connected with the devotional gaze. And I think it's important to note that the texts are clearly written in capital letters with few abbreviations, which makes them extremely legible. In the same period, we also see the increasing representation of the Akathistos hymn, the hymn of those who stand up, that's actually sung uh, Friday evenings during Lent right now, um, the most important hymn to the Virgin Mary. And you see on the screen the representation of the hymn in the north ambulatory of a monastic church in Thessaloniki dedicated to St. Nicholas, a space that was likely dedicated to the Virgin Mary, and one that also served as a site of burial. The hymn not only signals the glorification of the Virgin in a side chapel, but also represents a chant used in monastic vigils, particularly on Friday evenings. A hymn sung on Christmas Vespers, which you probably know, What Shall We Offer Thee O Christ? becomes the subject of a number of paintings in this period, as here at a monastic church in North Macedonia, dated 1294-1295. So this upsurge in the representation of hymns, in my opinion, coincides with a specific change in this period, and that is a change in the way Byzantine chant was constructed and the introduction of a new form of chant called kalophonia. Kalophonia means beautiful singing or beautiful voice, and it's a form of embellished chant that's introduced at the end of the 13th century and a development that spurns um, the creation of a new set of hymns. So expanding from hymns like the one you see on the screen, it's now possible to re-examine the painted programs of many, many monasteries to question whether new unusual scenes may be linked to new types of musical composition. For example, on the screen what you see is a scene of the martyrdom of Saint Demetrius in a church in Thessaloniki uh, that is pierced later by an Ottoman portal. So the portal below was one solid wall with pinky on top of it. Um, so we know quite a lot about this hymn, which may be related to this development in chant. Now, but beyond the consideration of musical composition, images of hymns inform us about performance spaces and ritual experience, and their introduction and proliferation reveal processes of monastic worship. So, going back to the churches, six of the churches studied by soundscapes of Byzantium were used by monastic communities in late Byzantine Thessaloniki, and all of them, as I said, preserved painting of the 14th century. So while our project considered architectural transformations and acoustics, we also considered the connections between painting and sound, and I'd like to report on just a few of these findings to kind of walk you through how we did the analysis and what kind of results uh, could be yielded. So first, let me explain how we do this. All of our conclusions are based on a scientific testing of the monuments. Our acoustical measurements are based on the principle of system identification. In system identification, a stimulus signal was reproduced over loudspeakers and recorded by microphones in the tested space. The test signal, which you'll hear in a second, consisted of an eight-second logarithmic sine sweep that was averaged multiple times to overcome the background noise from the surrounding streets. This meant that we measured the churches during the middle of the day when most people in Greece take naps, so we could minimize disruptive sounds from cars and trucks going by. I want to play for you the test signal recorded in the buildings on the screen, and this is the Church of St. Nicholas that you saw a moment ago, and I just think if you have sensitive hearing, I would ask you only to cover your ears uh, while I play it. So what you've just heard is a science that gives you any, any possible sound that the human or even canine ear could hear. Every time I play this, my dog starts barking like crazy. Um, and so these are averaged together, so we know from these signals that the buildings were actually tuned for male voices because you, you can hear much more clearly the lower range of sounds resonate in these structures. So one benefit of these sign sweeps is that their frequency spectrum closely matches the loudness sensitivity of human hearing by placing increasingly more emphasis during the low and the low frequencies, that's male voices. Deconvolution of the measurements in each microphone produces an impulse response that can be analyzed to determine several acoustical parameters for the space, including reverberation time. That is the time it takes for sound to decay or dissipate. Clarity, definition, and even decay time. In each church, we vary the location of the loudspeakers to match the place of the chanters during various services, standing or in front of the sanctuary screen, under the dome, in the narthex, in small chapels, in galleries, upper-level galleries, and even a ground floor. And we also varied the location of the microphones to capture different listening perspectives in the church, including in the nave, aisles, and upstairs galleries. So now that you've heard the kind of awful noise I was listening to an entire summer, um, I'm going to show you some of the information that can come out of that. So, in the Church of St. Nicholas Orphanos, We investigated whether images of the Akathistos hymn, which I showed you a moment ago, in the North Isle, a separate chapel in the late Byzantine period, were used as a background for chanters who might have sung the hymn in this space. That is, considering the established relationships between images and communities, it seemed plausible that we could identify a site of enhanced sound by placing singers in front of an image of Byzantine chanters. Makes sense, right? Well, this experiment failed dismally. The church had a surprisingly dry sound, which is the acoustical term. There was no resonance whatsoever. And this was disturbing both to the chanters and to the listeners. Yeah? Can you go a little slower? Sure. Thank you. As a New Yorker, I'm sorry, I do tend to run quickly. (laughs) So, on the left, you see comparative data of the eight Thessalonian Churches, And this is the church you're listening to. And if you're an acoustician and you want to hear about the resonance in a building, the most frequent way of people doing that is to clap. So can somebody hear, Mr. UCLA, give just a clap. Right. So do you hear the echo of the sound in this room? It's a a room with high resonance. But in this church, now that we're done clapping, in this church when you clap, you heard no echo at all. And that's not how churches are supposed to sound. And when you go to church even today, something that is pleasing to people in a church is for the chant to echo through the building, right? But this church had no echo whatsoever, which was really strange. Um, So what we did was we moved one of the chanters to the central nave, to the middle of the church. And there, this had a direct effect on our perception of the representation. Unlike the singing in the North Chapel, where the chanter's voice fell flat, there was no resonance, the sound of the voice chanting on the west side of the sanctuary screen and facing the altar, and you can see him here, was funneled through the portal below the Akathisto's hymn and emerged as if through a microphone. The representation of the verse above the portal is inscribed in legible capital letters, as you can see. You can probably all make out the Greek yourselves, but let me translate it for you. It says, seeing the strange childbirth Let us be estranged from the mundane, transporting our minds to heaven. The young Christ is seated on a bench at the center of the composition, as you can see with a bishop, and a cluster of chanters represented on one side. So these are chanters here with their turbans, which was the headdress that many chanters in this period wore. But because this composition is usually cropped in publications, and you see the way it's presented, publications on the screen, nobody was able to notice that the bench is actually centered above the door. The painter seems to have taken this architectural feature into consideration when planning the scene. Activated by chant in the nave, this portal became a magnifier of sound, a microphone for those standing on the other side. And the selection of this verse for this location with its emphasis on transporting our mind to heaven refers to the role of chant in spiritual elevation, echoing commentaries about the role of chant and the perception of the sound of chant made by Byzantine authors, as I will discuss. In this small church, the sound of chant, the words of the chant, and the sacred images are linked in an unexpected and sophisticated way. And portals like this became important sites for the images of sound, the study of such images is in its infancy, but even a brief collection of examples indicates that this is a fertile area for future study. Perhaps one of you can take up this study in the near future. Come with me and take up this study. Now in our testing it became clear that small vaulted chambers like narcisses and side chambers were highly resonant spaces, so there when you all clapped, And you heard the reverberation. This was the desired effect that you could find in these small chambers. And it cannot be by accident that these chambers, which were employed in monastic offices and vespers and mountains, for example, were decorated with images linked to sound. This is the case, for example, in the expanded or enlarged narthex, this space, in this beautiful church dedicated to the prophet Elijah in Thessaloniki, a space that we use for certain monastic hours and also vigils, different ceremonies. In the narthex, as you see on the plan of the church on the left, the seven cross vaults and two domes covering the nine bays are supported by four marble columns. You see the columns here, and these are the columns on the plan here, here and here, Um, that served a structural purpose. But these columns also impacted the acoustics of the chamber. Acoustical testing demonstrated much higher clarity in the space, as you could understand the words of the prayers chanted in the space than in the adjacent nave, which was much muddier, much more pleasing in terms of hearing music, much more resonant, indicating that the monastic community would have easily understood the complexities of the chanted service. And indeed, the existence of the four columns and the uneven surfaces of the ceiling may have created an early reflection pattern, to use the acoustical terms, that enhanced intelligibility, in other words, because the sound was bouncing off of the columns, refracting off of the columns, you could more easily understand the words. And the peaks that you see here, marked in the red arrows, indicate the reflections of these columns, which function to enhance aud- audibility of the words. Now I want to play for you a short clip from a callophonic verse composed by the um, composer Ioannis Komninos and embellished by a man named Xenos Coronis, And further augmented by a very famous composer, Manuel Crisafis, um, the kind of chanting we would expect in this church. And what you're going to hear is a verse that comes from a hymn called Magi of Persia, chanted (coughs) by three chanters that you see on the screen uh, who worked with our team. uh, And here's what you hear. So think about the clapping and the reverberation as you're hearing this. So what you just heard is actually a 14th century hymn sung in a 14th century space, and you can hear how clearly each word can be heard by anyone standing in um, the building. Now, up until this time, people have suggested you would need 10 monks to sing the service in this church, but there were three people who filled the space with their voices. Now, We position the singers at the threshold of the nave, which is where you heard them recorded, for a very specific reason. Because in the vault above where they stood, which is what you see on the screen, is a composition of angelic thrones and cherubim. You can see them here holding up standards. And let me change the image so you can see it more clearly. These banners on which are inscribed the words, Ayos, 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 the beginning of the seraphic hymn, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts heaven and earth are full of your glory, him you would all know well. Um, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who came and will come in the name of the Lord. The prayer from the anaphora on the great doxology refers to the interplay of humans and heavenly worship. The space in which the prayers were located, this narthex, was used for the monks to recite these hourly monastic liturgies. Indeed, the lower walls of the chamber are covered with images of monks reflecting the use of the space by members of the monastic community. And the easternmost image of the vault therefore gathers the monks in the presence of the angels together in holy song before they cross the threshold to enter the name. And so acoustically, visually, audibly, the space is tuned for these monks to have the service in that location. Now, in addition to analyzing data from the ground level of the, of level of the church, acoustical testing in this building of the prophet Elijah provided the opportunity to consider the soundscape of the chamber above the narthex. Elevated space like this one may have been used as private chapels for important patrons. As contemplative settings and monasteries or small chapels devoted to saints of particular importance to the communities. The space is accessed by a narrow staircase, this is really cool to walk up it, within the thickness of the wall. Um, You can barely fit in there, you have to kind of scooch down so you can go up the steps itself. Today there are no traces of Byzantine painting uh, in the chapel above, in the gallery, which is completely whitewashed, as you can see. But through the acoustical testing, we contrasted the frequency response in this upper chapel and below the dome of the church. So the upper chapel is in red, and below the church, the ground level is in blue. And the gallery response, the upper chapel response, You can see it starts to drop off about uh, 300 hertz, which is the measurement for frequency, um, and diminishes quite dramatically after that compared to the response under the dome. So the effect of this drop-off made the sound in the gallery perceptually crisper and clearer than at ground level. And this was also verified through a listening evaluation in the two locations. I have to say, when I was in the gallery and I was measuring the chant up there, the sound was so pure that we actually said, This is what the voice of angels sounds like. Now, is it possible that such elevated spaces here and in other churches were desirous? Not only because of the excellent optical view of the nave, of course, it offers a wonderful view of the service, but also because of the purity of the sound. Future studies will need to test the sound qualities of ground level versus elevated spaces in order to investigate further perceptual differences. Now, in no other building in Thessaloniki is the connection of image, sound, and ritual made clearer than in this tiny 14th century chapel of Christ the Savior, which in Greek has the little word of sotiraki, means the little Savior. Built for a monastic community in the mid-14th century, the time at which composers in the city were fully engaged in the composition of this new form of chant, Calophonia, the beautiful voice, its dome is is painted with a full cycle of images representing liturgical celebration, including its chanted portions. At the top of the dome is an image of Christ in glory, supported by six hovering angels with outstretched wings. Below the angels, on the west side of the dome, is a Greek inscription taken from Psalm 47, verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And the representation of four small winged figures blowing long trumpets manifests the psalm text and explains the fluttering movement of the angels. These figures are labeled with names, Thraskias, Voreas, and Livas, which are the names of the north and south winds. From the apex, the upper reaches of the dome, the church is thus filled with images of sound and movement. Now, the lower part of the dome is given over to images representing the divine mass, a heavenly service that unfolds sequentially in spaces imagined with ecclesiastical furnishings, ambos, altar tables, liturgical vessels and implements like chalices, patens, ewers, codices and candlesticks, and celebrants and performers. So you have priests, deacons, choir masters, chanters, Challenged by the openings of the window, the painter represents the celebrants between the windows, as you see on the screen, standing on ambos, pulpits, and platforms, and framed by arches. The participants, notably choir members, are positioned below the window openings, as you can clearly see. So following the order of the service, the scenes include, from the Byzantine rite, the little entrance, the gospel reading, the great entrance, the cherubicon, the cherubikim, and the dismissal. And each scene emphasizes the involvement of song in ritual enactment. So in the scene of the little entrance, which you see here, the display of the gospel reading at the entrance to the sanctuary, for example, is inscribed with a verse from Psalm 95 in translation, Come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us come before his presence. Flanking the sanctuary entrance, here, I'll let me go back here, are two choirs. You can see one here and one is just off screen here. Whose members follow the melody by means of these choral gestures that you saw earlier in the other church. The choir is present in nearly every image, with individual singers wearing conical hats and tall turbans and dressed in elaborate long robes. They form part of nearly every scene with their mouths open in chant, and only during the gospel reading when the faithful are instructed during the Mass to listen to the reading, and the scene is inscribed, Wisdom, Let Us Intend, is the choir muted? And they're stopping a chant. The fact that they cease to chant is signified by the fact that they've taken their hats off, and their hands are now by their sides, not moving around in choral direction. Within this liturgical cycle, the depiction of Romanos the Melod, the 6th century hymnographer, is most closely linked to musical composition and performance, Significantly, Romanos, one of Byzantium's most important liturgical poets, is located immediately below the prophet David, and this representation of Romanos ascending the ambo, this platform, signifies his miraculous composition of the hymn, Today the Virgin gives birth to the super-substantial one, angels and shepherds join in hymns of glory, the prelude to the Christmas kondakion, or the Christmas hymn. This image, therefore, not only illustrates the use of song in worship, but also links the process of sacred composition to divine inspiration. The liturgical images in the small chapel instruct us about the position, dress, and practice of choirs in the late Byzantine period, but also allude to the text that they chanted. They illuminate for us the, movements, the moments of sound and reveal the moments of silence. They line the dome circling a sacred narrative below images of trumpeting winds and fluttering angels, suggesting the important role that these images, mirrors of liturgical sound and ritual, played for the members of this monastic community. Flanking the monks at ground level must have been a cycle of saints of which only one remains, John of Damascus, holding a scroll in detail on the right inscribed in translation By your crucifixion, O Christ, tyranny was abolished. The opening words of a hymn sung on Wednesday and Friday mornings in monastic communities. John's representation adds another layer to the imagery and soundscape of this small church. Now, not surprisingly, considering its painted decoration, which I've just unpacked for you, the church is a superb sound space. In fact, somebody I was with compared it to singing in a shower. It was so resonant. The paintings and chant were intended to enhance one another. And this sound was augmented by deep cavities under the church that served as tombs. We think about these as burials, but they're sunk below the floor of the church, and so they allow the space to be more resonant. And also by clay vessels that were embedded in each of the pendentives, the triangular sections of the wall, which absorb high-frequency sound. So what you see here are these three dots are actually the openings of vessels that are put on an angle and are embedded in these sections of the building to absorb those high voices, which is again how we know this building was tuned for male singers. So now here's the challenge. I want to play for you a sample of chant recorded in this building so that you can hear what embellished composition would sound like, what California sounds like in a building which was intended to house exactly this kind of chant and was tuned for this type of singing. Now, let me tell you more about callophonic chant. It is characterized by the representation of melodic elements, expanded vocal range, and the intrusion of nonsense textual elements. So you're gonna hear in the piece I play for you the sound teririm, which means nothing. It's simply a way for the chanter to extend the verse, uh, to heighten the intensity of the chanted piece, and allow the singers and congregation to meditate on the mystery that's about to take place. All of this unfolds in the painted liturgy that's above their head. So they're singing below, and they're seeing exactly the prayers represented above. So the recording you're about to hear picks up in the middle of the Cherubigon, the cherubikim, after the gifts have been transferred to the altar, and starts with a line written over the head of the represented deacon here on the screen. So here's the inscription, and the inscription says, that we may receive the king of all who comes invisibly escorted by the angelic hosts, Alleluia. So let's listen to singers chanting a callophonic hymn of this century, the 14th century, in a church painted in the 14th century, tuned for male voices. And on the screen you can see the images of chanters painted in the church who follow the choir master represented at the right. You can see they're gesturing with their hands. And I'm going to play the sound for you, and I want you to concentrate on how many words they're actually singing. Okay? Can you do that? Here's the hymn. So, what you've just heard were three words of the hymn composition, O Son Basilea, extended by repetition and added sounds and chants by only three singers. (laughs) So, this evening I've given you a very brief look into a very large project that moves beyond Thessaloniki's churches to consider others. Byzantium's great metropolitan and monastic centers, mistras in Meteora, some of you will have heard of that site, and elsewhere. Um, churches in the late Byzantine period are full of images of sound. Texts like this hymn surrounding Christ in a church in southern Greece that were seen and heard, and in the case of this building, engage the community in physical response as other members converge singing under the dome. And this monastic church, like those in Thessaloniki, is full of sound images, as are many others in the late Byzantine period that could be discussed this evening. And as it will be clear, these images are quite different from those found in the village churches, which I began this lecture with, um, in showing sounds associated with prayer, but also the realities of life. Now, while I focused on the understanding of sound in the painted context of chant, through an art-historical, musicological, and scientific approaches, written sources from the period also provide valuable information about how Byzantine intellectuals perceived the acoustical environment of the church. Texts both spoken and written demonstrate an awareness of what is today a field called psychoacoustics, the study of sound perception. An early reference to the acoustics of a decorated chapel comes from an encomium, a text pr- of praiseworthy text, written about the Capella Palatina chapel in Sicily, in Palermo, delivered on the feast of the Holy Apostles in the year 1140. In this text, Philagophus of Carameos, who is a familiar with the form and decoration of Byzantine churches, describes the acoustics of the chapel referring in all likelihood to the domed eastern end of the church. So this section right here and this section that you see on the screen under the dome. So going back to this resonance of the dome. And he refers to it in this way. He says, the whole church, just like a cave, softly joins in the singing of the sacred hymns with its own voice because the echo caused the sound to return upon itself. The words are an accurate description of the desired reverberation within a dome structure. A dome structure, whether it is Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, or the tiny church in the village, or this one. And this phenomenon can be documented in scientific testing. Now, evidence of an interest in psychoacoustics, which is a very new field of study in acoustical analysis these days, comes from a much better-known source, an author associated with one of the most famous churches in Constantinople, which you may have also studied, the Church of the Christ in Hora, also called the Karie Jami. In 1321, the Byzantine statesman and intellectual, Theodore Metohides composed a lengthy poem, which you see on the screen, in Greek verses, entitled The Prayer Unto God and Concerning What Occurred During His Life and the Monastery of the Hora. He praises the restoration work that he had funded at the monastery, the place to which he would later retire, and the one in which he would become a monk shortly before his death. His poem, which you see on the screen, corrected by his own hand, so these are his notes on the side of the poem that was written, contain a number of details about the wealth of the building's decoration. He reflects, for example, on the magnificence of the cut marble that adorned the building's walls, as he says, Ordered in accordance with all harmony, and the stunning mosaics dazzling the eyes, as he says, with brilliant fire. He describes liturgical vessels of silver, gold, encrusted gems, and pearls, silken vestments like his kaftan, this is by the way a portrait of Theodore Metrochitis, uh, embellished, as he says, through needlework with massive amounts of gold, and icons covered in silver and precious stones. And of particular pride was his library, which contained hundreds of works, as he states, both of divine and Hellenic wisdom. And you see the wooden covers that remain from one of the manuscripts today in the Topkape Saray Museum Library in Istanbul. And as you can see on the upper cover on the right, it's inscribed with the following line, this book belongs to the Monastery of Hora. So it's his bookplate that's written in the book itself, and none of the books are surviving, only this covers of the book. Of all of the works contained in his library, Netohiti singles out the large number of manuscripts that are, as he says, of great utility for the singers in God's church. And in the second poem, written a year later for the Mother of God, concerning the Monastery of Hora, he delves into his motivation for funding the restoration of this monastery. His motivation is his guilt over his unscrupulous handling of the Byzantine treasury and his harsh taxation of the peasants. And in this work, Metohites returns to the church that he had founded, in this case speaking about the acoustic experiences of the building. One that had a typical form for the period, as you see, a large central nave covered by a broad dome, two nartheses, a burial chapel an annex and other small chambers intended for the practical and spiritual use of the brethren. And I should say that this building um, just reopened a week ago in Istanbul. It was just recently restored. Addressing the community, he describes his reaction to the sound of monastic chanting in the nave, the central liturgical space covered by the dome, but today bereft of its mosaic decoration. He says, My heart rejoices... When I stand in your midst in the choir and church together with the glorious choristers of the Lord God, thereby you are my ears and mind and all my soul filled with serenity and calm and love. And he continues, O you blessed companions in Christ, standing on either side of the church, intoning the monastic song in praise of the Lord God and the glorious mysteries and miracles of Christ the, the Master, these same did he show amongst men, and the same to the intelligences dwelling above, in highest heaven the angels, celebrate in hymns. Exiled from Constantinople for several years, Metohitis recalls with longing the experience of chanting in the church. I remember the old days when I was a member of a good choir, a good choir, and of the religious community singing hymns to God. I did it during both day and evening, sometimes at night, and sometimes throughout the whole night, with a pleasure, indeed difficult to describe. He tries to define the transformative nature of his chant, he says, it is most chaste and leads toward God and his worship. It gently charms the irrational part of the soul, or rather it defies rational beings quite well, befits rational beings quite well, and does so by dint of what is natural and peculiar to matters sacred and divine and by dint of a mixture of reverence and of plentiful, peaceful, and ineffable daylight. The text describes for us the overwhelming experience of hearing and singing choral music in the church, the antiphonal or two-part choir chanting with monks stationed on the north and south walls of the nave, the melting of human angelic voices, and the singing of a choir and a soloist whose voices weave together, but who preserve in their threads individual coloration. Metohitis is also writing about psychoacoustics, the effect of song on the listener. The images that survive in the church reveal something about his interest in the chanted sound. In the Hora hymnographers pause in the middle of composing funerary and commemorative odes. They find a place on the pendentives of a domed chapel given over to burials, including eventually those of Metohitis and his children the compositions that they write are the precise text chanted below in a space shared by images of saints and portraits of the dead. The church's program also includes other subtle markers of sound, figures gesturing in speech or reading from texts, cocks crowing, censors jingling, and toddlers, even holy ones, in the case of the Virgin Mary here, as an infant, that appear to giggle in delight. Such observations are echoed in the late Byzantine period by church intellectuals who move between Constantinople and Thessaloniki through a web of monasteries and who believe that sound, and particularly chanted sound and vocalized prayer, had the power to transform. Scientists who work on building acoustics believe that once created, sound is never erased, but simply folds, fades beyond human, human cognition. Sound is the last sense to leave the body. It lingers when sight is no longer present. This is why last rites are so significant to be heard by someone who perhaps can't even see you anymore but can still hear. Sound enhances vision with neurons responding to both sight and sound located within the same part of the brain in networks that often overlap and sometimes interweave. When we see Byzantine painting, we're meant to hear it, but how? The Byzantines were adept at creating spaces that were covered with images, but the sounds of the church interior have faded beyond our discernment. What is clear to me is that throughout Byzantine history, those who built and decorated churches, whether with mosaics or frescoes, tile or marble revetment, considered the sounds that would fill the building both spoken and chanted. Byzantine painting records for us those lost sounds, the low voices of chanting monks, the chattering of women, the ritual movement of feet in procession, the tinkling of bells, the clanking of chains. We can hear those sounds, but we have to know where to look. So for the middle schoolers, that's a very complex uh, unfolding of a very large project and I'm happy to leave with Mrs. Rasmussen a copy of the paper in case you want to review it at your leisure. I think that would be helpful for you. Absolutely, yes. yes. <laughs> would you like to take any questions? Sure. Questions or confusions? Or how many of you would like to come with me and sing in the building and record it? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm wondering, uh, since there's such a connection uh, between the, the text and on the walls and mm-hmm. the worship process, how literate the congregations would have been. And I'm sure that would have varied from um, place to place. Right. So your other question is how literate the population would be. So in the village churches I showed you at the beginning, the only person who probably would have been able to write the text would have been the painter. People in the village could read some words. They could make out some names, for example. So in the inscription you saw above the baptism, they could make out their own names, uh, as many unlettered people can still do today. In the monasteries, people could read. They were trained to read. So there's a difference between kinds of texts that you find in the monastic churches and what you find in the village, where there are virtually no texts written on the walls. Yeah? Could you help us understand something about the tradition of food? Who built these churches and, 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 and if they were consistent across the written culture and kind of having do are they government funded for example? So very none of the churches were government fun- well, the government in terms of imperial, there were certainly churches funded by emperors that were very lavish like Hagia Sophia the last church I I showed you was built by the prime minister, the wealthiest man in the empire, which is why it has mosaics and a very complicated program. The tiny village churches are built by communities that give maybe each family one gold coin. So that small church I showed you with the inscription cost 14 and a half gold coins in 1265, which for people who are farmers was probably a stretch but they banded together collectively to build the churches because they were probably also buried around the churches ultimately. So we find a huge range in who's building them and often they have their portraits represented in the building so we know a lot about many of the people who were the donors. But it's it's like our churches today. A wealthy community might have a much larger church with elaborate decoration. I'm thinking about the Greek Orthodox Church in um, L.A., St. Sophia, with its uh, crystal chandeliers, a more humble church not so much. Electric light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say like the right range of years would be between all just something like higher
0: than like one or like, whatever between each other? What was
1: like the rate like, from the early like, to like, the late whole So for the Byzantine churches? Um, the Byzantine Empire starts in three thirty and ends on a Tuesday in May in 1453. So the earliest church you saw, the St. Sophia at the beginning, 6th century, dated 532 to 530, took five years to build that enormous church with the Statue of Liberty inside. The other churches were 12th century, and then 14th century. So as you get later in the empire, um, because of how much time has elapsed, we have the most preserved churches from that end of the empire. How many churches suffered um, in times of war or conquest, and were torn down earlier than that. Okay. Other question? Yes. Uh, I have a quick question, so Why on um, some of the other like paintings were more like the faces kind of scratched off? Like, did someone damage them? Oh, that's a great question. Why on some of the paintings are the faces scratched off? So a lot of times, well, there are two reasons. A lot of times, um, because these are holy figures, sometimes people believe, superstitiously perhaps, that if you scratch off a bit of the plaster and you eat it or drink it, that it has certain powers to heal you. So that's one explanation. Often you'll find the eyes of the saints scratched out and people will have taken them home to bring them luck or fortune to heal illnesses, especially in a place where there are no doctors. People saw this as a kind of folk healing remedy. Other times, the paintings are scratched out because a second layer has been placed on top of them. And if you paint the inside of a building, you'll have to rough up the surface like we paint our houses today. Often you'll sand the wall before you put a new application of paint. So sometimes they'll rough up the surface so they can repaint them. And what we don't see sometimes, those layers have been taken off, those later layers. So those are two explanations for that. Very frequently, um, the Greeks will say, sometimes you'll hear, that the Turks came in and hacked up the paintings to destroy them. But in my own research, what i found is usually it's an internal renovation of the building that's caused the damage to the paint. It's a great question. Yeah? So were we looking at any, I guess we weren't
0: looking at any examples of iconoclasm in that case. It, was, huh. it was these
1: other examples you're talking about? So, in these cases, I wouldn't use the word iconoclasm. And they weren't part of that movement. Although, generically, you could say there was iconoclasm, because iconoclasm simply means the smashing of images, as you all know. Um, but this is more political, let's say, if they were destroyed by the Turks, like the image I showed you with the door that went through the hymn. I mean, one loosely could call that iconoclasm. I would say just wholesale destruction would be a better term for it. Of course, in Byzantium, um, going back to the other question, in the period of iconoclasm, many, many images were destroyed. Both panel paintings of icons, but also paintings and buildings were either covered over with plaster or the paintings were removed from the building. Because as you know, in that period, in the uh, ninth century until 843, uh, images were considered to be um, lead people to idolatry. After that controversy was uh, settled, in a very ingenious way where paintings were intended to help you venerate the saints. They were not intended for worship. Then the Byzantines come back and they fully paint their churches once again. You're asking as good questions as my undergraduates. Yes?
0: Um, so, does like, all the, like,
1: Location range from so if we're talking about the Byzantine period at its widest, um, let's say in the period of Justinian's largest uh, span geographically it goes from let's say the border of Iran in the east all the way through southern Spain. In the late Byzantine period it's only the area covered by modern day Greece and Turkey. So as time goes on, the empire contracts and becomes ever smaller.